Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Samuel Sinyangwe, co-founder of Our States, an initiative that connects communities to actionable information and tools to reject the Trump GOP agenda in every state and protect communities from harm. Mr. Sinyangwe is a policy analyst and data scientist who also co-founded Mapping Police Violence, which collects and analyzes data on police violence in the United States. He's been featured on MSNBC, CNN, BBC, the LA Times, the Forbes 30 Under 30, and the Route 100. Samuel Sinyangwe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, you've been awfully busy since you graduated from Stanford in 2012. And so I'm wondering, how long have you been active in politics? And what was it that drew you to political activism? So, you know, my first real political action really started uh, in high school uh, when I founded the Social Justice Club in my school. Uh, And, you know, my journey into activism uh, really wasn't a choice for me. It was something that um, almost was a requirement growing up in Orlando, Florida, uh, and experiencing discrimination, experiencing racism, seeing the the huge levels of inequity, uh, both economically and racially, uh, in in my own environment, um, led me to ask questions, right? As a young black man, it led me to ask questions about, you know, why this was happening, uh, where these disparities came from, and what we can do to address them. Uh, And that led me into activism and, and starting in high school and ever since. So before we get to our states, I'd like to talk a little bit about your prior project, which was Mapping Police Violence. And I'm wondering how that specific project came about. So Mapping Police Violence is the most comprehensive database of people killed by police in the United States. Uh, And the project came about really in the immediate aftermath of the Ferguson protests uh, as protests were reverberating all across the country, uh, the national conversation about police violence. Uh, was very limited to this question of, you know, what does the data say? Every time that, you know, communities would say that, you know, there are, there are systemic uh, discrimination and dis- systemic racial bias in terms of uh, policing, um, the media and the police would say, you know, we actually don't know if that's true. We don't have the data. Uh, we need to collect better data because the federal government doesn't actually collect comprehensive data on people who've been killed by police. Uh, and so, you know, I connected with activists and protest leaders on the ground in Ferguson, and together we built uh, the database. We built the most comprehensive database that people killed by police, uh, precisely allowing us to answer those questions, to, to document uh, the disparities, uh, to show, for example, that Black folks were three times more likely to be killed by police, more likely to be unarmed, to show the places that this was happening, um, and really to give communities the, the tools they needed to uh, show the systemic nature um, of you know racism in policing uh, and to identify effective solutions. So, what, when you, in putting this project together, I'm wondering what were the the main things, the things that stood out that you learned? I guess both about police violence as well as data on police violence. So, in terms of the data, the first thing that that I learned was that while the federal government was not collecting this data. It was because in many ways their methodology was flawed. They were relying on data being submitted and reported by individual police departments, of which there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. Uh, And meanwhile, according to the best research estimates, 
Uh, about 99% of the time when somebody is killed by police, it is reported in the local media. Uh, and so, you know, the data was out there. The media reports are out there. Uh, it's just that nobody had combined them, uh, put them all in one place, filled in the gaps around, you know, the race of the person, whether they were armed or unarmed, the agency responsible, all of these other different um, pieces to the puzzle, to the story, uh, and then analyze that data and use it to actually answer the types of questions that uh, the country was asking. And so, you know, that is the work that we did. Um, and in terms of our findings, some of the most significant findings, you know, I, I mentioned the disparities facing Black folks. Um, I think the level of police violence in this country was at a scale in which um, many people did not believe. So the fact that uh, more than three people every day are killed by police, that there are about 1,200 people killed by police each year, um, that, you know, Black folks were three times more likely to be killed by police, and in 17 of the 100 largest U.S. cities, Black men are killed by police at a rate higher than the U.S. murder rate. Um, so, you know, those are the types of statistics that really illustrate, you know, how severe this issue is. Um, and then also on the accountability side, you know, the fact that uh, fewer than 1% of officers who kill a civilian are ever convicted of a crime for it. Um, and so I think that is, you know, the whole picture of it speaks to a system that uh, routinely fails to actually hold officers accountable for uh, violence that in many communities is, is incredibly severe. Now, I, I know a lot of folks, especially on the right at least, will say that the uh, Projects like mapping police violence, they'll call them uh, anti-police. I even heard the, the term war on police and so forth. And, and I'm wondering uh, what, how, how you respond to those people who, who say that what you're doing is, is anti-police, that police should have the benefit of the doubt and that sort of thing. Uh, how, do you, how do you respond to those folks? So what I say is that, you know, it is not what we're trying to figure out is how do we actually reduce and ultimately uh, end police violence? And I think that what is clear is that the places that have lower uh, levels of police violence, uh, they also have are safer for officers. Uh, they have they do not have higher crime rates like like there are places that are actually doing it right. Um, and so we're trying to learn from that and scale that across the country. So there are many police departments that have very high rates of police violence, places like Orlando, Florida and Bakersfield and St. Louis. Uh, but there are also communities that have the same demographics, the same crime rates uh, that actually have much lower rates of police violence, places like Buffalo, New York um, and even Newark, New Jersey. So if we can understand what is working in particular places, we can actually scale that. And what you see is in those places, they are not more dangerous for officers. They are not a climate that is anti-police just because those communities have, have put in place policies that can help hold officers accountable. Um, so, so again, you know, I don't think that there's any data uh, showing that uh, addressing police violence is somehow anti-police or uh, puts officers in danger. In many ways, that's just rhetoric. Right. You know, and uh, I think what a lot of folks felt, at least under the Obama administration, was that they were sort of on the right track in, in using uh, consent agreements and the Justice Department sort of working with cities and police departments to try to reform uh, systemic racism and so forth. And, and and I would guess then that it's it's a concern for you that that under the Trump administration, it seems like the Justice Department is going in a very different direction on this issue. 
That's correct. And so we've seen, you know, Jeff Sessions, the AG, uh, try to walk back the negotiations and the agreements that have already been made. We've seen him try to backtrack uh, on Baltimore, uh, their consent decree, uh, which fortunately the judge uh, sort of overruled him uh, and said, we're going forward with this along with the city. Um, but what that speaks to is that the progress that had been made under the Obama administration has been halted. Uh, and this current administration is actively looking for ways to uh, unravel the progress that has been made. And so, you know, what we're saying is that is problematic, um, but it is not, you know, the the be all end all of police reform uh, because the, just, the Department of Justice only has the resources to investigate a handful of departments each year anyway. Uh, and there are 18,000 police agencies. So, you know, it will take change at the local and state levels uh, really to make significant progress on this issue. And, and so we're really focused on advocacy at those levels. Uh, to make it happen. Right. You know, you mentioned that 18,000 uh, uh, police forces. And I thought about that. I thought, my gosh, that must be a, a massive undertaking to, to gather data from, from, from all these sources and so forth. So I'm just wondering in terms of the nuts and bolts, uh, how, how difficult was this and is this to do? And, and how do you support such a, a massive effort? So fortunately, you know, we aren't the only people working in this space. Um, there have been there are two groups, uh, killbotpolice.net and Fatal Encounters, uh, which have been doing something similar for a long time in that they were using a system of Google alerts uh, to, to flag whenever an article uh, comes online that has a particular keywords like officer involved shooting, uh, police shooting, police involved killing, those types of keywords. And in doing so, they built up massive databases uh, of these incidents going all the way back to 2013, what we did was merge those two databases, which hadn't been merged before, and then fill in the gaps of information uh, around, you know, the race of the victim, whether they were armed or unarmed, and then make and then make sense of all that information because it hadn't previously been just sort of a spreadsheet online. What we did was uh, tell the story of what what the numbers say, um, and in terms of the resources, you know, it is easier to do this because we're relying on local media reports, we're relying on information that's available online already, whether through criminal records databases, obituary, social media profiles, um, you know, media reports. And that is much easier than going to 18,000 police departments and, and requesting information, waiting on that information to be provided if it ever does get provided. I mean, that strategy is the strategy that the federal government had relied upon, and it's precisely why they their numbers, they only have about 40% uh, of the records that we have. So, so that's sort of how the ecosystem works. Uh, in, it, there are many players in this since we launched our database, the Washington Post and the Guardian have launched uh, databases that are similar. And so you know, there are more resources involved in this effort now than there ever have been. So what were your goals in initially setting it up? And, and do you feel like you've reached some or all of those goals? So the initial goal was to show the crisis that was happening in communities in terms of police violence. Um, I, before we launched the database, you know, the country may have acknowledged that police violence was an issue in St. Louis or in Baltimore, um, but they weren't thinking that it was in their own community or in their own state uh, or that it was indeed a national crisis. Uh, and I think through the data, and not only through the data, but also through um, activism all across the country, I think 
it has in large part convinced this country that, that this is a crisis and that something is going on. I think people still disagree over what exactly is going on and what should be done. Um, but I think we're in a different place now than, than where we were, you know, in the beginning of 2014. Uh, in terms of, you know, next steps, I think, you know, once you convince the country there's a crisis, uh, then the question is, what do we do about it? I think what we have done is not only use the data to show that it's a crisis, but also uh, helped identify solutions. So we looked at, for example, the 100 largest police departments in this country uh, and their use of force policies, the policies that determine how and when officers are allowed to use force. And for the first time, what, what we found was that the departments that have the most restrictive policies, policies that, for example, make deadly force a last resort, uh, ban officers from using chokeholds, uh, require officers to use de-escalation, and those types of pr policy provisions, those are the departments that have the lowest uh, rates of police-involved killings. Uh, so in many, in many ways, we're building an evidence base uh, around what works, what types of solutions are associated with reducing police violence, uh, and we've been advocating for these all across the country and indeed having some success uh, get these policies adopted in places like Orlando and Baton Rouge and Sacramento. Um, so I think, you know, we're making progress. Again, you know, 18,000 police departments, it's very hard uh, to, to change a large proportion of those police departments. And so that's sort of the gravity of the work ahead. Sure. Now, let's talk a little bit about your most recent project, Our States. Um, why did you start that up and how can you kind of tell us how that works? So Our States is a platform that identifies state legislation across a number of key areas that uh, are important to communities. So uh, state legislation regarding immigration, so bills that potentially ban sanctuary cities, or on the other hand, actually create sanctuary states, protect immigrants, bills that impact reproductive rights, LGBTQ equality, uh, voting rights, policing and protests, and so many other areas. Uh, and the reason we created th this database and this, this map uh, and guide was really because so much of the national conversation since the election has been focused squarely on Trump and what Trump and the federal government have threatened to do. Um, and, you know, that is obviously a huge concern, um, but it is not the only threat. In many ways, what we're seeing is that as Trump's agenda stalls in, in the courts and in Congress, states, particularly GOP-controlled states, which most states are, are moving forward with Trump's agenda anyway. And in many ways are, are enacting laws that are even more severe. I mean, just today, Texas signed a law, the governor of Texas signed a law that criminalizes sanctuary cities uh, and also is a papers please law. So it authorizes police to inquire as to people's immigration status, even at a traffic stop. Um, so, so we're in a situation where in many states, they are in implementing Trump's agenda fully. Uh, and there's not a lot of attention that has been paid to this. And so what our state is the platform to give people the tools uh, to engage at the, at the state level, to contact the state legislators and hold them accountable to, to resisting this agenda um, that is so harmful to so many communities. So what would you say have been the biggest challenges that you faced in creating our states? So one of the biggest challenges is that state led, there are 50 states. Each state has its own particular process and timeline for legislation. Uh, it is hard to track all of these different bills across all of these different states in a timely way, especially when in some states, you know, legislators can decide to have a vote on a bill 
you know, within a day um, without having without having this sort of waiting period in advance that could give us time to actually mobilize people around uh, engaging. And so that has been a huge challenge is coordinating all of these different pieces uh, of information and, and also making it clear that, you know, it is one thing to have a database of information. We also are engaging communities uh, in each of these states uh, around particular calls to action regarding legislation. So I think the, the coordination of all of this is a huge challenge, um, particularly given you know the rapidness with which some states can decide to take action on particular bills. Right. So in in looking at all of these various initiatives over the states, do, do, do you see any trends? I mean, certain things that keep on popping up that you might consider kind of the, the top threats of the Republican uh, agenda? So I think the biggest thing has to do with sanctuary cities uh, and immigration. Uh, we've seen already this year, uh, this legislative session, a number of states sign into law measures that would either completely ban sanctuary cities. So this goes further than Trump's or executive order, which merely defunds them at the federal level. Uh, so state legislation that completely bans sanctuary cities in some cases criminalizes uh, even legislators, so city council members who um, sign a bill to make their, their city a sanctuary city. Um, and in Texas, it goes even further to include further measures that uh, give police more powers to identify and, and, and detain undocumented immigrants. So that's a, the big issue. Uh, it is something that has accelerated given the climate, the political climate that we're in and some of the rhetoric coming from the president. Uh, and already this year, we've seen states like Indiana and Georgia uh, and now Texas, uh, Mississippi, sign legislation to do this. And already a number of other states, over 20 more states are currently considering this legislation. So if we don't act now, by the end of the year, we could see you know, 10 to 15 states that have completely banned sanctuary cities, uh, despite you know, at the federal level, Trump's executive order being put on hold. Right. So then then your hope, I, I would guess, with with our states is that people will go there, they'll find out about the issues that are in front of their state legislature, and then they'll contact their legislators and, and, and their legislators will will listen to them. And so to me, that then the, the fundamental question is, I guess you believe that legislators will listen to people who contact them, right? I mean, and in that sense, at least that's sort of a hopeful thing in that you feel that the state legislatures at least will be responsive if enough people sort of rise up and, and contact them and interact with them. Well, I think we have to use every tool available to us in our toolkit. Uh, I think there's no guarantee that your state legislator will listen to you, uh, but you do have more power to influence your state legislator than your member of Congress. So the average state representative district is 12 times smaller in terms of population than your U.S. representative's district. So you, you have 12 times the voting power to influence them, um, and we have to use it, right? I think if, if we all engage at the state level, at the level that we're currently all engaging Congress, I think you would see a, a, a big change in terms of the types of bills that are getting, that are getting passed. However, we do recognize that you know, in many cases, these state legislatures uh, are heavily Republican, are going to move forward with this agenda. And so the question is, you know, how do we actually make sure that we're unseating these representatives in the upcoming elections? You know, in 2017, we have Virginia that's having a, the, their state House of Representatives having an election, as well as in 
New Jersey. And then 2018, uh, all the other states are having their elections. And so we're working with partners like Flippable that are engaging in the electoral politics of making sure that we're actually flipping these state representatives, mm. these state legislatures. Yeah. It's, it's got to be sort of a frustration in that so much of the news coverage is, you know, focused on, on Trump and the national level and so forth. Whereas, as you pointed out, there's so much going on at the state and local level and people can actually have a greater voice. And yet it seems like uh, engagement at that level and, and news coverage at that level is so much less than it is at the at the national national level where, where people can't have quite as much of an influence. Absolutely. And part of it is that people, um, part of it is the education, the political education to help people understand that on so many of the issues that, that they care about, the state legislatures actually have more power over those issues, more jurisdiction over those issues than the federal government in most cases. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that given the structure uh, of the United States government um, and, and, federalism, it requires us to engage at the state level to, to really have impact. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, clearly there are a, a lot of serious concerns that people in the United States have. I mean, especially people who are poor, LGBTQ or people of color. And, and so to kind of shift and try to end things on at least a slightly more positive note, uh, what do you see that that's positive? I mean, what sort of things make you, you know, proud of proud of America, give you hope for the future, that sort of thing? So I'm hopeful because of the numbers of people that have engaged, that are now engaged in the work, that now have shown up, whether it's in marches like the Women's March, which is the largest march uh, in U.S. history, uh, whether it has been the protests uh, against police violence that we've seen over the past several years, uh, more protests than ever had been recorded in U.S. history in terms of the number of protests. Um, yeah, that, that shows a level of engagement and activism that is necessary uh, to address and, and, and to resist um, the threats that are coming from the federal government and from many of these state legislatures. I think the challenge is how do we coordinate all of that? How do we make the, our numbers count? I think there are more people who believe in justice and equity than believe in you know, Trump's ideology um, of exclusion. And the, the question is, how do we make our numbers count? And, and so I'm hopeful that we can figure that out, that we can continue to organize and build coalition and we can continue to use new technologies that can help scale this work uh, more rapidly. Things like you know, on Twitter, which has been so effective over the past several years uh, of, of bringing voice to the voiceless. Um, as well as other technologies that, that have yet to be developed. Right. And I would imagine an especially challenging element of that is getting progressive voters to come out and vote in non-presidential year midterm elections or, or in uh, state legislative elections where, where turnout tends to be much lower and conservatives tend to be overrepresented. Exactly. Another, another huge part of making our numbers count. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, one final question I have for you. So obviously you are you are very uh, wired into what's going on in, in politics these days and policy. And so what is it that you do to stay current with everything that's going on? And and, and for our listeners, what resources would you recommend for, for them to stay up to date without being overwhelmed by everything? So Twitter has been an incredible resource for me. Um, because it, it is the it is real time information and news about what's happening. Uh, the problem is, you know, you have to make sure that you curate your Twitter feed in a way that 
uh, allows for the right information to come through and not, you know, fake news. Um, but it is a huge resource uh, if you follow the right people, if you follow, um, you know, incredible citizen journalists um, who are doing great work. I think another resource has been the sites like 538.com, uh, which really helps as a data scientist, it helps me understand issues better because it breaks it down um, in a form that that is quantitative. Um, you know, sites like 538.com, Vox, uh, and others have been really great in terms of visualizing that information, quantifying it uh, to make its impact more clear. Um, so that's what I would recommend. Well, I think there's... Uh, and, and, yeah, those okay. are definitely some great recommendations. I know both sites that I that I check out on a, on a regular basis, and I, I'm sort of encouraged that we we've been seeing a rise in, in data journalism in general online in the last few years. Absolutely, and I think it'll be so important, uh, given that in many ways, you know, Trump's ideology depends on uh, ignoring the data, ignoring the facts, uh, and so making sure that we're able to show the facts quantify them and visualize them in a way that that they're accessible to, to people. Um, I think that is a, such a powerful tool of resistance. Yeah, and you've certainly been doing a great job at that, both with our states and with and with the police and mapping police violence. So with that, we will close. Samuel Sinyangwe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any suggestions for future guests, or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. We especially appreciate those monthly sustaining contributions through Patreon. They really do help out a lot. If you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you join us.